0: We've been working our way through the book of 1 John in a series that we've called Authentic Christianity. And last week we sort of stepped out of the book for a second just so that we could respond to the elections and and consider what the scriptures might say about how we are to relate to our government and what that means for us, what it would look like for us to biblically respond to our government. So we considered that last week. This week, we're jumping back into the book of 1 John. And as we do that, I want to just refresh and remind you of where we are. And particularly if you're new today, I want to get you caught up very quickly onto what we're looking at together. Uh, those of you that have been tracking through this series with us, you've done this enough and been with me enough through this that you could give this introduction for me, right? So if I were to ask you who wrote this first letter that we are considering, Undoubtedly, I hope you'd be able to say John did, right? The disciple of Jesus Christ, one of the 12 apostles, and probably Jesus' best friend while he was on the earth. This one who loved Jesus and knew Jesus writes this letter. If I were to then ask you, and who did he write it to? Again, if you've been tracking with me, about a dozen times or so throughout his letter, you've heard John say, Beloved or children, or my little children. Over and over again, we hear sentimental, soft John addressing this people as his beloved, his loved ones, his little children. And we know that he's not talking about his literal children, but his spiritual children. We know that John is now an 80- or 90-year-old, old, godly, wise pastor, and he's writing to a church or churches under his care, to Christians that are beloved to him, that are like little children to him. And then if I asked you, and why did he write this letter? Maybe you'd have to think a bit more, but hopefully we'd be able to remember that the circumstance that caused this whole thing was that some of the folks that were in church, that were a part of the fellowship, that looked Christian and talked Christian and walked with us and ate with us and shared fellowship with us and looked like they were the real deal, some of them just left. They abandoned Jesus. They walked out on Jesus' church. And they ended up believing strange and weird things. They claimed that they had this spirituality that was far above everyone else. They had this secret insight and this special wisdom and these amazing experiences, whereas everyone else didn't. And so they kept harassing the folks in the church that stayed that they had somehow discovered some kind of special relationship with God and that these ordinary, plain, everyday Christians were not Christian And so John writes because he loves the beloved, because he loves the church, and he wants to assure them of what authentic Christianity is and then reassure them that they are in fact authentic Christians. And as he does that, he wants to expose the folks that left that they are counterfeit. And so he writes this letter in order that his beloved, the folks that stayed, the ones that stayed in Christianity would be reminded of what authentic Christianity is and be reassured that they themselves are authentic Christians. Now if I ask one more question which is and how does he go about doing that? Right. We know that John wrote the letter. We know that he wrote it to this group of Christians. We know that he wrote it so that he could show them authentic Christianity and reassure them that they are authentic Christians. And then if I asked you and how does he go about doing that? Well, What we've seen in his letter is that he's given this vision of what Christianity is and then he's given these tests. In fact, three categories of tests in order that the people as they hear his word might be able to examine their hearts and know if they are in fact authentic Christians. Three categories of tests by which they could examine their hearts and know if they are truly in the truth. In case we've forgotten those tests, they're in our passage today, in the passage that Amy read for us. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn it open to 1 John 3 again. It'll be shown on the screen as well. At the end of our passage, I'm going to start at the end and then work our way back to the beginning, we've got a summary of these three tests, these three categories of tests that John had given. Listen to what he says in verses 23 and 24. In two verses, he's going to summarize all the tests in the book. And this is the commandment, his commandment. First, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. Second, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Third, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. In case we forget... All three of the categories of tests by which we can know if we are authentic Christians are summarized for us succinctly in these two verses. The first one, again, in verse 23, is the belief test that we believe in the name of His Son Jesus, right? So we said, here's the first question. You want to know if you're a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe truth about Jesus? Do you love Jesus? right? The first question to ask, if you want to know if I am an authentic Christian, is what do you think about Jesus? And, and we made great efforts to distinguish between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus, right? We said that you could miss ultimate reality in 18 inches between the distance of your head and your heart, that you could know about him here, but even the demons know about him here. But the question is, do you know him here? Have you experienced his love? Do you know his grace? Have you enjoyed his salvation? Not just do you know that he was born of a virgin, that he died and he rose again, but do you know him? Do you know Jesus? That's John's first question. The second one was remember and love one another. That was not just a belief test, but a, a social test or a relational test. And the question is, if you love God, then you will love the children of God. Remember John 3, 1 John 3, 1 was What manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And John's saying to us, look, if you are a child of God, then God's other children are your brothers and sisters, and you ought to love one another. And John went through great pains to show us that love is not just talk. In fact, two weeks ago when we were looking at verses 11 and following in 1 John 3, we heard John say, Brothers, if you see a brother in need, and you have the world's goods, and your heart is closed against them, how does the love of God abide in you? Beloved, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. And for John, the test is going to be, is there evidence of sacrificial love in your life for the sake of others? Not just talk, the counterfeits were full of talk and had no shortage of profession about God and about people, but is there evidence of sacrificial, self-giving love? Remember John had said, we ought to love the brothers as he laid down his life and loved us. Sacrificial evidence of you loving other people. Forsaking hate, he had gone through great pains also to say, don't be like Cain who murdered his brother, but be like Jesus who laid down his life for the sake of the brothers. So the second test was, do you love one another? And the third one here is in the beginning of verse 24. He keeps his commandments. And the third test was this moral test. You've got the belief test, the social test, the moral test. Are you obeying his commandments? Are you keeping his word? Are you doing what he says? And throughout the letter, John's been trying to establish, look, obedience is the evidence that you know God. And we we tried to distinguish obedience is not how you get to know God. No, that's repentance and faith. But obedience is the evidence that you do know God, that you have repented and believed. For John, it's the question of, do you hate sin and love God? Or do you love your sin, thereby evidencing that you have no love for God? Are you walking in the light or are you living in the darkness? Are you fighting your sin? Are you treating it like an unwanted intruder into your life, into your home? Or are you treating your sin like a welcome guest? Have you made peace with it? Have you signed a treaty with it? Are you feeding it and hosting it and welcoming it? What's your relationship with sin? And John gives these three tests. Do you love Jesus? Do you love people? Do you obey his word? So that his hearers might examine themselves and come to be confident, come to be assured that they are, in fact, authentic Christians who are walking in, living in, and believing authentic Christianity. Okay, now, John is, at the same time, mature enough a Christian and wise enough a pastor to know that this is not always the case for Christians, that though his entire letter is for the aim of producing confidence in us, assuring us that we are Christian, John is mature enough a Christian and wise enough and good enough a pastor to know that that's not how Christians always live, that in fact, often, rather than confidence, what we feel is condemned. Rather than being assured that we are authentically Christian, the experience for Christians is often one of doubt of, am I really a Christian? I mean, if you've been Christian for any time at all, you've undoubtedly faced these doubts. This condemnation of the heart, this accusation of your conscience that you can't really be Christian right? If if you've been Christian for any time at all, you know that rather than walking in this assurance that you belong to God, that you know God, that you love God, that God loves you, that you will be with him forever in heaven, you face this nagging, persistent doubt. These moments or these seasons where something in your heart begins to whisper, you're not real, you're fake, you're a fraud, you're counterfeit. And and what John wants to help his people and us is what do you do when that happens? How is a Christian supposed to respond to the doubt that creeps up in his heart, to the condemnation he feels from his heart, to the accusations he senses from his conscience? What is a Christian supposed to do? Well, that's just, that's exactly what John's going to tell us this morning. I basically just want to show you two verses today. And I think that John has loaded them to give us the answer we need for how we ought to respond to when these doubts come. First, he establishes that these doubts come. Look at what he says in verse 19. 1 John 3, verse 19. This is what it says, 19 in the beginning of 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, now there's more to that verse. I want to stop there for a second. Here's basically what John's saying. That we come before God. And and I want you to know this. Authentic, genuine Christians have times when they have this crisis of faith. And, And what John's saying is an authentic, genuine Christian will come to God, will come before him, verse 19 says. And John has in mind even the example of prayer. We'll see that in a few minutes. But say you're coming to God in prayer. Or even now, you're standing here in church in his presence. You sense that you're before God. And there's something gnawing and nagging at your heart saying, you don't belong here. You come to the Lord in prayer and yet you can't pray because everything in you feels like you don't belong. Something in you condemns you as if you can't stand before him, right? Maybe you're in your house or in your car and you, you sense this desire to pray, you have this need that you want to pray for, but as you're about to go and pray, you cannot stand there long because you feel condemned. Right? You're standing there in the company of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and you. And you just feel like you don't belong in that company of the Trinity. And you have this deep sense that you don't belong. John says it in verse 20 as, Whenever our hearts condemn us. And I want you to hear that. He doesn't say, If ever your heart condemns you. He particularly chooses the words, Whenever our hearts condemn us. So as to communicate to you, Christian, It is not an uncommon or unusual or even infrequent experience for an authentic, genuine Christian to feel condemned by his own heart, to feel like I cannot be here and I probably am not real. I can tell you from my life, I've been a a Christian for some time, and I have had various seasons and moments where my heart condemns me and nothing in myself can believe that I'm real. Where I'm constantly feeling like I must be a fake and a fraud. And any assurance I thought that I had of authentic Christianity is out the window. This will happen, tell me if you, if you recognize this, this will happen in seasons of sin. Habitual sin, indwelling sin. If you're a Christian, you know of seasons where you are fighting your sin, and yet no matter what, you can't shake it off. And that becomes this opportune time for your heart to begin to condemn you and say, do you see that? You're never going to be free of this thing because you're not a Christian. And Christians don't struggle with sin like that. There'll be other seasons which come where you just don't know the gospel well. You have this embryonic baby love for Jesus, but you don't know the gospel. I can tell you, for decades of my life, I lived on this constant roller coaster, right? When I did my devotionals, me and God were close. And when I didn't, we dropped. And when I beat sin, we were up. And when I didn't, we dropped. And constantly going up and down, and the whole thing was based on my performance. I didn't have a a good understanding of the gospel, I didn't know that this was about Jesus and his finished work for me. I thought that this was about my work for him. And because of that immature understanding of the gospel, I was constantly feeling condemned. It'll also happen when you focus on yourself. Listen, John's word to us calls us to examine our hearts, but there is the danger of hyper-introspection, of morbid introspection, When you find that you are staring at yourself and glancing briefly at Christ. I mean, when you do that, constantly you're going to feel condemned, right? This is why a saint named Robert McShane wisely said, for every glance toward self, take ten looks at Christ. And his point is, look, the proportion ought to be that we glance at ourselves and we stare at Christ. Christ rather than inverting that to staring at myself and glancing briefly at Christ. When you do that, you have no hope but to be condemned. This will happen also, not just from within yourself, but from without your enemy. The scripture says you have an enemy of your soul, and one of the things the scripture says he does is he accuses the brethren. And so just like the serpent was whispering in Eve's ear from the garden, from that day forward he's been whispering in the ears of God's sons and daughters. And so you have an enemy that is relentless in accusing you. His principal work is to accuse the brethren, to accuse the sons and daughters of God. And so you hear this voice from your enemy saying, you call yourself a Christian and you thought that? You call yourself a Christian and you said that? Tell me which Christian would have done that? And you hear these questions begin to weigh on your soul, these condemnations that arise from your heart. And it begins to lose your assurance, it begins to undermine your assurance. And you find yourself asking questions like John's church was asking Am I really a Christian? Am I an authentic Christian? Am I really a believer? Is this stuff true? Or am I a hypocrite and a fraud and a counterfeit and a fake? And John knows even when you take his tests, you might even find that rather than producing confidence, even his tests might alarm you. Right? As, as you consider, do I really know Jesus? Not just know about him. Do I know him? As you consider, do I really love Jesus? one another my brothers and sisters not just word and talk love in deed and in truth in laying down my life that seems to be the evidence of christianity am i sacrificially loving anybody has it cost me anything to love anyone recently and as you ask that test of yourself or or even the test of am i keeping his commands do i see evidence of obedience in my life Or does it just feel like there is sin anywhere and everywhere in my life? And as you ask these questions, you can find your soul is alarmed and anxious more than it is confident and comforted. So what do you do when your heart condemns you? If you're a counterfeit, Jesus warns, you already stand condemned. And John's not even addressing you particularly this morning. But if you are a Christian, then what do you do when your conscience, when your heart condemns you? What do you do when it says to you, you can't possibly be a Christian? Maybe you ignore it and and try and get it away. That's not what John recommends. In fact, John is going to recommend that you answer your accusations and you answer your conscience. How do you answer it? Maybe you tell your conscience that you are going to church, you have been baptized, you did make that decision, you signed the card, you walked down the aisle. That will do no good because your conscience will only tell you that just proves what a hypocrite you are. That you're still going to church, that you think that moment was real, that you think that thing sealed it. So how do we respond to our accusing conscience? John tells us, and it's fantastic. Verse 20, this is what he says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. I want you to hear what that means. That means when my heart says to me, you are guilty, you are accused, you are not a Christian, I say to my heart, heart, you don't have the final word. God's verdict on my heart is greater than your verdict on my heart because God is greater than my heart. I say to my heart, you can accuse me all you want, but God is greater than my heart. And the verdict of God over my heart is greater than what you may say of me. I say to my heart, whatever accusation you may make, it is less than the verdict that God has pronounced over my heart because God is greater than my heart. I want you to hear, Christian, if you come to a place where you feel like, I can't forgive myself. Have you ever been there? Right? You know the truth that God has forgiven you. God loves you. But you feel like, I just can't forgive myself. Do you know why that is? It's because you have elevated your heart above God. And you're saying, what I feel is greater than God. And what I hear my heart saying is greater than God. And we need to hear John say to us again, God is greater than our heart. And so I say, whatever I may feel, heart, God is greater. And his verdict over my heart, his word over my heart is the final word. My heart does not get the final word about me. God does. And I remind my heart of what God has said over my heart. You see, it's, it's like there's this trial going on in the inner chambers of your heart. There's this trial going on. You want to come into the presence of God. You want to stand before him in prayer or with God's people in church. And yet you find this condemning heart, this accusing conscience. And there's this trial that's begun in the inner chambers of your heart. Your heart is the prosecutor. And he's got a case. Maybe the case comes from lies of Satan. Maybe the case comes from truth of your deeds. In fact, his case may be valid because you really are a sinner. You do stand condemned. And so your conscience and your heart stand there as the prosecutor. You stand there as the defendant on trial. God stands there as the judge. And now begins this trial in the inner chambers of your heart. And your condemning heart lays its case before the judge of why you stand condemned. What hope do we have? Well, have we forgotten what John has already said in 1 John 2, 1? I write this to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. In the inner chambers of your heart, when that trial begins, do you not know, Christian, that Jesus, your advocate, stands up in your defense? So that when your condemning heart brings its case, Jesus, the righteous one, lays before God the judge his merit and the righteousness of his life and the merit of his death and says to the Father, this is the case. And do you not find your Father listens to your advocate? And your conscience is cleared, your guilt removed, your sin washed away. I say to my heart when it condemns me, God is greater than my heart, and his verdict of pardoned is greater than my heart's accusation of guilty, and his word of mercy is greater than my sense of punishment or justice. God is is greater than my heart John doesn't even stop there he goes on to even say whenever our hearts condemn us God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything that second part brings us even more relief he's greater than our hearts so his word matters over our hearts and he knows everything so you know what I say to my heart My heart may accuse me of sins that it knows, and I say to my heart, accusing heart, God knows everything. He knows more of my sin than even my heart knows. My heart is made aware of some of my sins, but God knows all of it, and still he has pronounced no condemnation over me. You see, like many of us are young in this church. One pastor rightly said, that means we have 20, 30, 40 years left of life. Do you know how much sin is waiting? There's stuff you don't even know. And when it comes up, you're going to be surprised to go, I couldn't believe that was in there. Do you know God's not going to be surprised on that day? He knows everything and has still said, no condemnation for you. When that future day of sin arrives, he will not be surprised. He already knows everything of what is in my heart and has chosen still to love and pardon and forgive and accept me. What can my conscience bring up that God does not already know and that God has already not decided to pardon and to forgive and to remove from me? So I say to my conscience, And I say to my condemning heart, what you know in part, God knows in full. He knows everything about me. And he's still chosen to forgive. And this this idea of he knows everything also means he knows my heart. He knows that there's love deep down in there for him. I want you to know that. When my heart tells me you have no love for God, I say to my heart, God is greater than you. And he knows everything. In fact, he even knows, no matter what you say, heart of mine, that there is love for God in here. However embryonic and small and weak the faint heartbeat of my love for him might be, he is able to detect it, and he knows it's there. It's like this scene in John 21 where Peter, one of the disciples, if you know this story, Peter has just finished denying Jesus three times, denying him even when Jesus was dying on the cross for him. And Peter is ruined. I mean, Peter's got nothing to stand up and look Jesus in the eye with. He, he's ruined. He's denied his Lord, though he promised he would die for him. And in John 21, there's the scene where Jesus is standing at the shore with Peter. And he asked Peter, do you love me? What does Peter do? Does he answer that question by claiming something he had done or some great merit of his own? He knows he's been laid bare. He knows that the Lord denied him, that he denied the Lord. What does he say? Lord, you know everything and you know that I do. What Peter has to say is I know my actions have betrayed any thought that I love you, but you know everything, and you know down in this heart there is love for you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep, and makes Peter the the rock on which he will build his whole church. So I have to say to my condemning heart, like Peter, heart of mine, God knows everything, and he knows that I love him. I know that the heartbeat of that love for God might be weak and faint right now. It might be embryonic and small, but he knows everything. And he knows that I love him as well. So when my heart comes to accuse me, John says, you answer your heart. And you say to your condemning and accusing heart, God is greater. And his verdict over my heart is greater than the verdict of my heart over my heart. His word is the last word. And his word is the word that matters and counts. And I say to my heart, and he knows everything. If you know some sin, he knows all of it. And he has chosen to love me still. And if you accuse me of having no love, well, he knows everything still. And he knows that there is love for God in my heart. And that's why John begins this passage by saying, by this we can reassure our hearts as we stand before him. This is what John's trying to drive home to you this morning. It's a gracious word from God. It's that this is real, and you really are forgiven. As I was meditating on this this week, I couldn't help but think of the movie Good Will Hunting. You remember that movie? It's probably decades old. If you haven't seen it, get Netflix and see it, right? I remember this scene it's it's Matt Damon is this brilliant guy. Robin Williams is this counselor. Matt Damon's a very troubled guy, but brilliant guy. He knows everything. And throughout the whole movie, it's this counselor's attempt to try and reach him and get to him. And the whole movie, he can't because the guy already knows everything. There's nothing the guy can say that Matt Damon doesn't already know. But the movie ends with this very gripping scene where this counselor just says this one word over and over again to him he says it's not your fault right you remember that scene he just goes it's not your fault and the guy goes no no no, I, I know and he goes it's not your fault and it's not your fault and he keeps saying it till it's uncomfortable and something happens in the movie because it travels from here down to here and it explodes in his heart and I feel like that's what John I feel like that's what God is trying to do through John for us. I feel like God is here trying to say to each of you who are Christian, you are forgiven. And I feel like you know, just like Matt Damon, yeah, yeah, yeah I know, Lord. I know Jesus died for me. And, and I know you know it. In fact, 1 John has said, I write these things to you not because you do not know, but because you already know the truth. I know you know it. And yet, through these verses, I think God just wants to come to you and say, you're forgiven. And you go, I know, I know. You're forgiven, You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You know that thing you're thinking about right now? You're forgiven of that. That stain that still haunts you, you're forgiven. I feel like God wants to just hold you, and you keep going, I know, I know. And he's saying, listen to me, you're forgiven. Not one sin, not one blemish, not one stain. There's nothing between You're forgiven. Everything single sin you're forgiven and i think what first john wants to do is somehow have that go from here to here and explode on our hearts it's true all of it has been forgiven all of it is gone nothing is left and if that happens Then finally, what John has been writing this whole letter for all along begins to burst onto your heart. He wrote this so that you could have confidence, so that you could be assured. Last verse, let me tell you that's exactly what he says. Look at verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him so here's what John's saying if your heart and its accusations are silenced by the truth that God is greater than our heart and he knows everything and if your heart begins to really believe I am forgiven everything forgiven then do you know what begins to happen John says if our heart doesn't condemn us then we have confidence before God and we can go to him and ask of him whatever we want, and we receive. John says, look, if if all the sin that is there to condemn your heart is gone, then now there's nothing holding me back, and I can go to God with great confidence, and that's what John's been trying to get in your heart all along. it's, It's John saying, you now have a passage to the king, to the father, to the To the Lord of the universe, and there's nothing holding you back or separating you. You can go with confidence because what holds you back? It's as if you can go to God the Father the way that Jesus goes to God the Father now. Think of this for a second. If I were to ask you, how does Jesus approach the Father? Do you picture Jesus in the heavens, sort of cowardly, crouching into the presence of his Father? Do you picture Jesus sort of creeping in, hoping he's not seen? No, you you imagine Jesus gladly, joyfully, confidently stands before God. And I go, okay, why does he do that? And maybe you say to me, well, well, he's one with God. And the scriptures say, so are you. In fact, verse 24 of this passage, you can just hear it with me, says this. It says, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us, and we abide in him. Do you not know, Christian, that this is what Jesus did? He came to live in you and that you might live in him, and you are now one with God. You're not God, but you are one with God. And even as the son goes to the father freely and confidently because he's one with the father, so are you. And if you say to me, well, Jesus can go that way because there's no sin keeping him away, then I say to you, and neither is there for you. In fact, that's what the good news is. That's what the gospel is. That's what John's been teaching this whole time. There is no condemnation, no sin to separate you. And so as freely and boldly as Christ goes to the Father, so freely and boldly can you go to him as well. Because you are in Christ. And Christ has opened the way. This is why he came and died and rose again that you might be in him and he might be in you and you might go to the Father with confidence and then, as the verse says, and then you can ask him whatever you will. You can pray freely of whatever need may be on your heart knowing that you stand with the Son. Let me give you one illustration and then I'll close. I read this week about Lincoln and there's a movie about Lincoln so I thought that that was timely. I don't know if this illustration is true but it's a good one. I read that Lincoln, during the Civil War, had ordered that all his troops be kept in because the war efforts needed them and no one was to go home on furlough. This one man went down to D.C., a soldier, and wanted to see the president. But two guards stood outside and would not let him into Lincoln's chamber. And he tried to explain that he had to go home, his wife was dying at home, and he needed to be released on furlough so that he could go back to his house. He tried as best as he could to explain, but the guards showed no mercy, and they did not let him in. And so this man turned around, dejected, devastated, destroyed, sad, and walked away. And as he was walking down, a little boy saw him, and his face and countenance could tell that something was wrong. And so this little boy said, what is the matter? And this man was so devastated that he blurted everything to this little boy and said, I need to go home. My wife is dying, but I cannot go in to see the president. And the story goes that this boy took him by the hand and led him back around. And he called out through the door, Father, let me in. This boy was Tad Lincoln, Lincoln's own son. And so Lincoln drops his pen immediately, throws open the doors to his chamber, invites his son in, and holding his hand is this soldier. And there with the boy's hand in his hand, confidence now filling his soul, he pours out his petition to Lincoln. And the story goes that at that very moment, Lincoln signed his release order and sent the man home. That is what Jesus Christ has done for us. We come before him, but the guard of our own conscience and our condemning hearts will not let us in. And when we are tempted to walk away dejected, destroyed, and sad, we find his own son holds us by the hand brings us before the Father and says, Father, let me in. And holding the Son of God's hand with confidence in our soul, we make our petitions. This is what John said. This is what John said. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. And beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, We have confidence before God, and we can ask of him whatever, and we will receive it. Let's pray together. What a gracious and good God you are, our Lord, and we thank you for your word. How great your love for us that you would pen these words for our sake that we might not only know you, not only be spared from wrath for our sin, but that you might even give us means by which we can be assured in this life that we are yours even for the life to come. Pray for every struggling saint in this room and every Christian whose conscience is loud today. Let the order be inversed and let God be greater than our heart. Console us by that and remind us that you know everything. And then with the confidence that comes from a clear heart, help us to approach you boldly, to make our petitions known, knowing that we have the heart of God. Do more than we knew to ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.